Well, good morning, everyone. Um, happy Boxing Day. We can ask Toby later exactly what that means. Uh, it's a British tradition, but the day after Christmas is Boxing Day, and it's not the sport of boxing, but putting things in boxes somehow. Um, but glad you're here, and I know for a lot of us, uh, this is a bonus weekend, right? We've maybe been here three days in a row, and uh, for some of us, I'm sure that we have uh, more than usual folks at home with the snow and, and the, the fullness of the weekend. So welcome, Lord bless you guys as you join us via live stream. Um, but it's good to be together and it's good to worship. The best thing we can do is to be together in God's presence. And so um, I'm glad to be here. My name is Paul Buckley, I'm one of the pastors. And we are in a series in Romans, but we stepped out of that series for the season of Advent and, and just taking time during Advent to prepare our hearts and think about the wonder of the Lord coming and all that it means, the, the uh, love and the, the hope and the joy and the peace he brings us and bringing us himself. And what I want to do today, normally the next Sunday after Christmas, this year happens to be the next day exactly after Christmas, but the next Sunday after Christmas, we usually take time to uh, talk about something related to the new year. Uh, and then we go back to our series. So next week we'll be back in Romans in case you've been waiting for that. Uh, but what I want to do today is just to take some time to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 we'll be focusing on. As I prayed about what to talk about today, I felt the Lord leading me there. Um, I can't say for sure whether that was the Lord, but I can say for sure this is God's Word. And so we're going to benefit as we dig into His Word and look at this passage. The title of the message is The Race of a Lifetime. And the idea you'll see here is this marathon race that is the Christian life. Uh, and I thought it would be important to talk about this reality for all of us as we look into the year 2022. We don't know what lies ahead in 2022 in many ways, but in some ways we do. And that's what we'll see in this passage. And as we think about our lives and each year and as the years go by, uh, as a believer, there are some fantastic joys we get to experience as we run this race together. Uh, in particular, as we see others join the race who were not in the race before and join with us as we uh, look to Jesus and run this race. So there's wonderful joys in that. But there's also the sad realities. There are, are those that drop out of the race. And this letter uh, to the Hebrews was written because there were people in the face of trials and difficulty who were dropping out of the race. And the writer of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who it was, a lot of good candidates, but the writer of Hebrews wanted to encourage and exhort people to not drop out of the race, to give them every reason to stay in the race. And this is, I think, the core function of my job as a pastor, Pastor Toby's job as well. Our job is to do all we can by God's grace to make sure you stay in the race and you finish the race. And not just finish it, we are here to help you maximize your reward at that finish line as well. That's our job in a nutshell. That's our burden. And so today, uh, I want to I serve that end uh, by looking at this passage. And I trust it exhorts you and encourages you and equips you to run this race of a lifetime. So let's pray before we look at God's word and seek to benefit from his truth and his power. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. And Lord, we have a year ahead of us and perhaps many years ahead of us where we're called to run this race. So teach us, Lord, how to run. 
Teach us how to run together. Teach us how to run in your power. And I pray, Lord, help me to, to so teach and proclaim these truths that, that by your grace and your power here, we are exhorted in this, we are encouraged, and we are equipped in this. It's all from you, Lord. We look to you. We thank you that you're here with us as we meet in your name today. And we ask for your presence and your power that we would hear you speak to our own hearts through the proclamation of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start a little earlier in chapter 11 because it's related to what our particular two verses, but then I'll read into chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. So it's just starting in uh, verse 32. The author says, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and, of, of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God's word from Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. And I want to focus in on chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. But I want us to see the whole context. What's going on here in, in this section is a really great Olympic type event. That's the picture here. Those are the words that the author is using. This is an Olympic type event, a great event. Matter of fact, it's the greatest event of history that's going on here. It's the greatest Olympic-like event of all of history. It's the race of faith. It's a lifelong race. It's a race until your final day. So it's a race to the death, so to speak. It's a race that every believer is in right now. And chapter 11 speaks about this reality of the crowd of witnesses who are commended for their faith. They have run the race. They have believed. They have fixed their eyes on God and run the whole race. And that race for them has involved all sorts of things. Some have conquered kingdoms. Some have been sawn in two. And I think for most believers, it's a mixture of both. That's what life is. There's times when you conquer kingdoms, so to speak. And there's times when you're sawn in two. There's times when you suffer. And that's what life looks like. And that's the race of faith that they've gone through. And now all these people who have lived by faith 
are now part of this cloud of witnesses. So it speaks of this. Now important just to take a moment to talk about what faith is because the Bible defines it. What is faith? Because this faith is what characterizes this cloud of witnesses and it's faith that characterizes those that finish the race. So it's important, I think, to stop and say, well, what is faith? What, what is faith? What do we mean by faith? Now, Hebrews teaches us explicitly what faith is in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And then later on in verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, speaking of God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. These two verses are tied together because it's speaking of faith. And it helps fill out the picture of what's going on in faith. Faith is believing in God's existence, the, the, that he is. He is. It, it involves aspects of that that are important too, that he's always been and always will be, but he exists. It's believing that. It, it's, it's knowing that is true, believing it is true. By the way, I've said this before, everybody has faith in something. It's just a question of what your faith is in. And I think the best faith to have is the faith that believes that God exists. It's the easiest faith to believe, I would submit, and the most rewarding, of course. And that's the other part here. It's believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it isn't just that he exists, that he is, but there's something about him, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, that he responds to us. And so it's the assurance of things hoped for. We're looking to God, hoping Expecting, and, and biblical hope is, is usually not the sort of wishful thinking hope that we mean, but the, but the expectation sort of hope, like this is, this is going to happen. I'm planning on this. And so it's the assurance that these things that I'm planning on are actually there, that he exists and he's going to reward me as I look to him and depend on him. He rewards those who seek him. That's what faith is. And that's the essence of the runners in this race, that they all... Believe that he exists. But not only that, he rewards those who seek him. There's an orientation in that belief. It isn't just factual, intellectual belief, but it's the belief of the heart. I can believe someone exists and, and not really be glad about it, not be hoping for it, not expecting there to be some reward interaction there. I could believe maybe there's some enemy that they exist, but that's not... That's not biblical faith. There's more to it. It's like believing a friend exists. It's, I, know, I know Pastor Toby exists, and I'm glad he exists. And we have a relationship that involves loving and blessing and supporting one another. That's the picture of genuine faith. Believing that he actually is, and that he is this one that rewards. That I look to him, and he responds to me. So that's important, understanding this key element of those in the race. They are those who walk by faith. And much of Hebrews is an exhortation to not let go of faith in Christ, God the Son. And so, uh, that's the race. That's what's going on here. That, that's a key essence of those in the race. So let's launch now into chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as we do, I just want to look at this race, some key aspects uh, about it. What the, what the text, what the Bible says, and then how do we understand and apply that. So, so first, we're going to see that we run the, for the finish line because we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. 
Second, we run for the finish line by casting aside every hindrance. And third, we run for the finish line with our eyes fixed on Jesus. These are the three points I want to talk about from our passage. So we run for the finish line, it says, because we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. It says it right there. Therefore, therefore, and, and the word for therefore is a strong therefore. Therefore, in light of the, everything you've seen so far in, the, in this letter, in chapter 11 especially, guys, thinking in terms of this sense, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. That's what the author is getting at, that because we have this amazing cloud of witnesses, let us run. So picture, uh, picture an Olympic sort of event in the, in the day of Paul. The, the Olympics were different, but that was the idea that, that there, we're called to run this race. The word for race means a competitive race. The cloud of witnesses is this idea. Just picture uh, those coliseums, right, that they had back then. Um, these stadiums that were different than our stadiums. They were closer packed, and then they were steeper, but they could fit a lot of people. They could fit, I believe, tens of thousands of people in these stadiums. And that's the picture here of running the race as running a marathon, then the final part of that marathon, you come in to the city, you come into that Colosseum, and you're running on the track, and you're running that race, and that's, the stands are full of people. But they're not just anybody. These are all the heroes of faith throughout time in those stands. And the author of the Hebrews is wanting us to understand that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. That they have run the race before. They have finished the race. They have run this race of faith. And they're there as our witnesses cheering us on but also serving in a, in a exhortative function. That, in other words, they have finished and we know we're running in front of them, and they're not only cheering us on, but we're thinking, wow, he's there, she's there, and they finished, and what a hero they are. I want to be like them. That's the idea here in these witnesses. So think of it like this. Imagine you're at, I don't know, Fenway Park or Gillette Stadium or the Garden, and you, you get to play on the field. And I know, yeah, you, you're not of the caliber of professional athletes. Maybe there's someone here who is, but... I like to think I am sometimes, but I'm not. Um, none of us are. So anyhow, you're there though. You're, you're getting to play. Um, you're playing flag football on the field at Gillette Stadium. And in the stands are all the heroes of the NFL, all the Hall of Famers in the stands watching you and cheering you on. And just think what that experience would be like. You're playing flag football and you're thinking, I mean, you're in front of all these guys. All the, all the past, all the present ones are all there. So whoever your hero is, I don't know. And I know whenever I pick heroes, there's always people who don't like that guy in terms of football. But say it's Tom Brady, uh, uh, Steve Grogan, whoever else. Dick Butkus for me, I was, played that position in high school. But anyhow, they're there and you're playing, they're watching you. It's going to be a mixture of like, of wow, they're for me. This is great, I'm so encouraged, but also I'm playing football in front of them. You know, how can I compare with them? And, and so that's the function here in this passage that, that this cloud of witnesses is both to encourage us, but to also exhort us to finish just like them, to follow their example and run this race and not give up. They made it. You can make it too. They made it in a way where they conquered kingdoms 
or, and or, they got sawn in two. You can get through all those things as well. So don't give up. Don't let your trials uh, bring you down. Don't let the, the short end, the short-sightedness of life sometimes keep you from the long-range goal of finishing the race. That's, that's the impact here of this cloud of witnesses. So think, who's in this cloud that the author's talking about? All of them. Way back, from way back. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, women like Sarah, Deborah, Rahab, Mary, people like David, Gideon, Jeremiah. Add to this New Testament believers, Peter, Paul, Mary, Martha, Believers beyond the New Testament time, Augustine, Patrick, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Wesley, Whitfield, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, Ann Heseltine, John Wesley, Billy Graham, all these people, including there also the ones you've known personally that have gone on before us, maybe friends, family members, grandmothers, all there having finished the race. This is the cloud of witnesses we run before. And they ought to inspire us to finish the race. They ought to inspire us to live as they did. Though imperfectly, they finished. And so we are to run the race in light of this cloud of witnesses. Those who have believed and by grace have continued to believe to the very end. It should inspire us. And so I think that this calls us to apply this in different ways. First, to be encouraged that this is happening. It's just amazing. And I think we should hear the voices, in a sense, of this crowd cheering. I don't know if you've been at a, at a big stadium, but when the crowd cheers, it's, it's like the roar of a jet engine. It's loud. Um, and, and when there's a great play, that just all of a sudden the crowd is so loud. Well, that's what's going on, really, for us as we continue and those great plays may not be great things like conquering kingdoms. It might just be being faithful when you're insulted or if someone offends you, forgiving. If somebody takes extra grace, you're giving your life to love them and serve them and lay your life down for them. It may be that time when you, when you decide to, by God's grace, to be bold enough to tell that friend about Jesus. Those are the sorts of plays that heaven cares about. And so this crowd of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses is, is a witness to you as you run the race. I think a great application of this also though is to have spiritual heroes. To have an understanding of some of the history of the heroes that have gone before us. And we're, we're all at different levels of reading and so forth, but I'd encourage all of us to, to read and understand some of the heroes of the faith. This room on the side here is called the Judson Room. That's because Adoniram and Ann Judson were sent from right nearby here in Bradford to bring the gospel to present-day Myanmar. And their story is amazing. And I would encourage you to get a version of their story. There's all different versions. There's the shortened versions. Um, actually, we, have, we did a class last winter, the eight, eight missionaries to know and we covered Judson, right? We covered Judson among them. You can just listen to that. I'll give you the link for that. Or get the book To the Golden Shore, which is probably the, the, the biography of Judson. It's just an amazing story. 
And just to tell you that, to give you a, a little spoiler maybe, he wasn't perfect. He really struggled. He pretty much lost his mind for about a year. And God met him in that brokenness and used him. And to this day, um, there are thousands, I believe even millions of believers in Myanmar among the Karen people who all trace their faith to the faith of this couple, this young couple who in faith, in lots of ignorance, but in faith went to bring the gospel. So who are your heroes? Who are, you, who are you getting to know in history that you can understand who they are so they can be part of that cloud of witnesses for you? This is meant to function. I know for me, I, I've received so much encouragement in reading good biographies. And when I'm not in a biography, I'm less encouraged. So I just want to encourage you to run your race in light of this cloud of witnesses. Secondly, we run for the finish line by casting aside hindrances. The author says that we're to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. This is a marathon. And you can't do a marathon if you've got weights attached to you and if you've got things that entangle you. Sin which clings so closely. And uh, probably a, another way to say some of our translations says easily entangles. That's probably a, a more direct way to describe what it's saying there. So these weights weigh you down. These sins entangle you. The, the pitcher is trying to run the race with weight on you. A marathon. It's not easy. The more weight, the more difficult it is. So imagine trying to run a race with something heavy on your back. I don't know, maybe for the sake of illustration and to remember the point, think of having a gorilla on your back and trying to run a race. Do you know that male gorillas little side point. Male gorillas uh, can weigh 500 pounds. Uh, they get as tall as six feet. They don't get that tall, but 500 pounds. They are 15 times, up to 15 times stronger than humans. So anyhow, imagine you're giving a gorilla a piggyback and trying to run your race. It's not going to work. You're not going to make it, even if you can stand on your feet. Most likely you're going to trip and fall. And that's the picture here. Lay aside the weights. Get rid of the gorilla. And it's interesting that the implication here, uh, there's two things. There's the weights and there's sin. And the implication here is there are things that you might be carrying that aren't sin. They're not wrong, but they do hinder you running the race. They do, they do for you hold you back. They might be something someone else can actually find empowerment through to run the race, but for you, they hold you back. And for me, I, I know that, that there's lots of things like this. There are certain hobbies for me that are like this. Um, I think hobbies are important. I think time of recreation is part of how we run the race. God gives us the Sabbath and patterns of rest. That's important. But for me, I have to be careful with different hobbies. Um, one hobby that I've done in the past that hasn't been helpful, and I had to give it up for a time, was, was hunting. I like to hunt, and I, and I know some of us have a hard time with hunting. Uh, I think it can be done in a way that helps maintain a healthy animal population, despite what the movies say, and put food, puts food on the table. But I did that for some time, and, uh, and I found during the time that I was doing it, I was obsessing over hunting. This is back some years ago. And I woke up in the morning thinking about when I got to hunt. And I was at work thinking when I could plan my hunting. And on the weekends and times at work, and it became an obsession for me. Um, it's a, a good recreation, um, but for me it consumed my affections and my attention. 
and giving it up for a time was really helpful. It freed me up. So whatever it might be for you, there might be things in your life that are weights. And they might not be immediately obvious to you as something that is wrong. They might not be wrong at all. But are they hindering you from running the race? Are they hindering you from following Jesus? Are they hindering you from getting closer to Jesus? Are they hindering you from being part of the life and mission of his people? Are they hindering you from these things and rather than helping you? That's the picture here. And we are to lay aside these weights. We're to cast the weight off. We're to drop the gorilla off at the zoo and finish the race. And also, though, it says the sin that so easily entangles. The sin that so easily entangles. Picture trying to run through an area full of vines. Maybe thorny vines. And trying to run your race through that. And there's all these vines. They're, they're up to your knees. And you're trying to run through it. There's just no way you're not going to get caught up, trip, and fall. And that's the picture here. Running the race with sin hanging on to your life is, is like trying to run through thorny vines. You're, you're going to get caught up. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. And so you need to lay aside these things. Actually, the, the metaphor doesn't cover entirely because the, the reason the vines are there is you or me and our sin. Sin is anything. Anything that is not about loving God and loving others according to God's word. It's failing to love God, it's failing to love others, failing to follow His ways. And there's a whole range of sins. There's sins that are subtle, that we think are okay, like gossip. There are serious sins, such as murder and so forth. The whole range, it's, it's all sin, it's all ultimately not trusting God, not loving Him and loving others. So what are the sins that easily entangle you? All of us have them. None of us, sad to say, I look forward to the day when I can say otherwise, but none of us are free of entangling sins. We all have them, and if we continue in them, they'll tangle us up, and we'll drop out of the race. That's the reality for all of us. So what are yours? You don't have to say it out loud. What are your entangling sins? And part of us running this race is being self-aware. Maturity often is just simply self-awareness. It's realizing, you know what, I'm not so strong here. I'm weak here. I need help here. Maturity doesn't mean you've overcome your weaknesses. Maturity means you've acknowledged your weaknesses and found the strength that God gives for your weakness. All of us have these things. So what are the entangling sins for you that you need to put aside? And God gives us what we need to put aside. I'll just share one of mine as I was putting this together. I struggle with the sin of self-sufficiency. And I'm often unaware of it. And if you know me, you may not think I'm very much like that, but you don't know all the stuff that goes on inside my heart. And this is where I see this sin. When I face challenges of various kinds, I often struggle when things don't turn out right or don't turn out as I want. Uh, we're all called to, to love what's good and to build things that are good. And so many of these things for me are, are good things that the Lord calls us to do. But when they don't work out quite right, when the relationships don't go as I thought, when, when that event doesn't work the right way or whatever, I find in my heart anxiety. And then the anxiety can turn into, if it do, things don't you know, continue, into depression and frustration. Or sometimes they turn to anger. 
Because then I start thinking, well, this didn't happen and it's because of this or that. And I get angry. And I go into a downward spiral. That's one of the entangling sins for me. And so what does it look like for me to put aside that sin? What does it look like? Well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself in the text here, but, but I have to look to Jesus. Not myself. And I have to remember these truths here that, that, that the race involves things that are difficult and, and even being sawn in two, so all my plans are not going to come to pass. And yet he's there. He exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so when I am in that place, I need to give it to the Lord. It's not my job to make everything work right. My job is to respond to him and do what I can according to his call and then let him take care of it. And he, the results are up to him, not me. I'm not God, so stop trying to be like God. You know, when I try to be God, it doesn't work very well. I get depressed or I get angry. And so for me, that's a sin that entangles me. I must lay aside. I must practice that. For me, the practice is often just prayer. When I start to feel those things, go pray and give it to the Lord. What is your entangling sin? I encourage you to think about it and write it down and ask God to help you with that and get with others you can trust and get their help as well. So we run the race in light of this cloud of witnesses, we run the race, casting aside the weights and things that entangle us. And finally, we run this race for the finish line because Jesus has already finished. This is the best part here. Because if we just think about it without this last part, we have to be honest. We're going to forget about the cloud of witnesses or we're going to compare ourselves to the cloud of witnesses and be discouraged. It's not going to work right. And if we try to cast aside weights and the things that entangle on our own, we're not going to succeed. But this last part of this passage teaches us to look to Jesus. We do these things, run this race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He has finished Right hand of the throne of God. He has finished the race. We look to him. And this isn't just like look at him, take a, take a gaze. Oh, oh there's Jesus. It's, it's some translations say fixing our eyes. And that's actually a better way to say it. It's this intense looking. It's, it's fixing our eyes. It's focusing. It's letting him fill all of our vision. It's looking at, at him in this way as we run. You cannot run the race if your eyes are not fixed on Jesus. You run the race of faith by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And it's Jesus who has finished the race. This passage is all about Jesus ultimately because it starts out with this cloud of witnesses that we run in front of and we cast everything aside. And then, the, and then the, verse 2 speaks of the ultimate witness, Jesus who has run the race of faith himself, just like the cloud of witnesses, but his race is the original race upon which all the other races are based. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who grants faith and finishes it, perfects it through his own life and death and resurrection, and through his reign, he will keep us in the faith. He is the author and finisher of the faith, of your faith. He is the ultimate witness of the race. 
He's the originator of the race. And he waits for you at the finish line. And the author says, fix your eyes on Jesus. This one who has gone through this race. And his race was far more difficult than your race will ever be. And yet he has overcome. For the joy that was set before him. For finishing the race. For pleasing his father. For being on that throne. For entering into glory. For establishing the kingdom. For rescuing all those in the race. For, for, the, for the sake of all the, the countless number who will finish the race. The joy set before him. He fixed his eyes on the end goal. And he got through the cross itself. The cross of shame. He despised the shame. He still experienced the shame. He was shamed on the cross. That's one of the aspects of the cross that sometimes we miss. The cross was a terrible shaming. It was ultimate degradation of a human being. Only the very worst people were put on the cross. The cross was brutal. It was brutal physically, but it was brutal in its shaming of the person, of the, the physical pain and the shaming. You stood there condemned naked on the cross. That's how they did it. It was such a horrible thing that even the Romans who loved to torture people and watch people die considered the cross too cruel. And the word for cross was a swear word in their culture. That's how cruel it was considered. And Jesus was put on the cross. Shame God, the most glorious one. Bearing our sins on the cross. Bearing shame on the cross. Bearing the shame for our sins. Bearing the just penalty for our sins. Bearing the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. This most horrific trial anyone could ever, ever face, he endured for the joy that was set before him. It's so important to understand we're setting our eyes on one who has gone through something way worse than we ever will and has made it to the other side. And he's there at the finish line waiting for us. And so we're to be aware of the cloud of witnesses. We're to throw off the weight and everything that entangles. And we're to fix our eyes on this one who has gone before us and finished this race for our sake. For he bore on that cross the wrath of God. And it, it, it's helpful to understand that aspect to understand his agony, his agony not only in the cross, but as he contemplated the cross. He speaks in the Garden of Gethsemane about a cup. He asked for this cup to be removed if possible, and his humanity was just so daunting to drink this cup. What is that cup? Well, we can look to Psalm 75 and elsewhere. 75.8 describes the cup, for it says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is a cup of the holy God's just wrath towards sin and sinners. God is perfectly good. He's holy. There's not a shade of darkness in him. There's nothing but righteousness and wisdom and faithfulness, and kindness, and truth. He's holy, holy, holy. Beyond us, beyond our, even our comprehension to understand how holy He is. And as the Holy One, He must react to all evil with 
wrath. We get that, we're, though we're not perfect as he is, we still get that it's right to, to respond to injustice with anger. That's not right. It shouldn't be that way. We all feel that all the time. And this is God. This is who he is. He sees evil. He sees rebellion. He sees falsehood. And he must react in wrath. And, and there, so there's the metaphor of this cup of wrath, of God's wrath to pour out on humankind for their sins, both culturally and corporately, but individually. His justice, it's not unjust, it's not harsh, it's not a cruel wrath, it's a perfectly just wrath, it's a measured wrath, it's appropriate. And in, in the, the final day, none of us will say, oh, that's just not fair, we'll say glory to God for his justice. And this cup of wrath is what God the Son drank. Because not only is God just, but He's also loving. Infinitely loving. And He and His mercy wished to save us. And so God the Son, in cooperation with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, took on flesh, lived a righteous life, and then went to the cross. And so he, it says in Luke 22, He says, Father, if You are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus suffered and bearing the holy wrath of God, the shame of our sins, the pain physically, but most of all spiritually, of the cross. For our sake. For you. So he could be the author and finisher of your faith. So that he could pay for your sins. And through that, purchase your forgiveness. Purchase for you the gift of faith itself. It comes from him, not from us. So that as you put your faith in Jesus and the work of Christ only applies for us as we put our faith in Him. But that faith is a gift from Him. So that you could be forgiven for all of your sins. Past, present, and future. That you could be in the race. That you could know Jesus as the King, as the Good Shepherd, as your elder brother. To be part of the family of God. To be in this race. To have Him with you and for you. To be part of this cloud of witnesses eventually. As well. He has gone through this race. He has conquered sin and death. He's the author and finisher of your faith. And he's there at the finish line. Waiting for you to finish. Cheering you on. Eager to say. At that finish line. Well done. You made it. You're here. We run this race. By fixing our eyes on this Jesus. Who died for us. Who rose again. Who's seated at the right hand of God. Who's there for us. Who's promised never to leave us or forsake us. Who understands suffering and hardship greater than we do. And yet is victorious. In every way. And will use all things for our good. This is who waits for you at the finish line.
So as we enter 2022, let's run the race together, brothers and sisters. Let's remember the cloud of witnesses. Let us live in light of those who have gone before us and who are there. We can make this by their example. Let us throw aside everything that hinders. Not only the obvious things, but anything. Any weight that keeps us from running well together. Let's realign our lives to run well for the long haul. And let us most of all fix our eyes on Jesus together. That is so much a part of what we're about here. To come together every Sunday to refocus on Jesus. And we do that in our corporate gathering, but we do this through our relationships as well. Let us be there for each other to remind each other of who is there at the finish line. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run with endurance this race that's before us. Amen.